Good morning. So this is my second time doing this, so welcome to round two. Uh, all right, so if we remember last week, Warren preached uh, an excellent sermon on Matthew 21. We're going sequentially. So this is Matthew 22. Uh, go ahead and bring up the first slide. In Warren's sermon, he highlighted how in the earlier part of Jesus' life, Jesus tried to stay out of the limelight. He wasn't ready to reveal who he uh, was yet. But now, as we see in 21 last week, Jesus is dramatically declaring his messiahship and his kingship. So this is a sort of a, a, a transition that's happening um, that's really important to call out here. Uh, so this week we're going to be looking at 22, but um, well, I'm not going to try to re-preach Warren's sermon, because um, that's good. I mean, we're going to leave that alone. But... Um, we do need to go back into 21 to build a little bit more of context for 22. Because uh, if you just were to like walk right into 22, it's kind of like interrupting a conversation. Like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Um, so we're going to need to, to build this out a little bit. Uh, so I'll, I'll show you what, I, what I'm talking about here um, in just a moment. Um, but first, I think we should pray. God, I know that standing here, I'm inadequate to convey the depth and the breadth of your, of your word. So God, I pray that you would breathe your spirit into this message and that, that you, would, you would speak to people through this time, God. Uh, in your name, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, next slide. All right, so um, we're just going to look at every topic from 21 to 22 just briefly as an overview. So the first thing, uh, we have the triumphal entry. And then we have Jesus cleanses the temple uh, Jesus curses the fig tree, and then the authority of Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees. Then after that, we have three parables. We have the parable about the two sons, we have the parable about the tenants, and then the parable about the wedding be- ban- banquet. And then after that, we have three times that the religious leaders try to trap Jesus in words. Uh, one, two, and three. I didn't really list them off. So if we look at them all together, um, next slide here, There we go. So if we look at where Matthew 21 ends, it kind of ends in the middle of these three parables. Um, And then then Matthew 22 begins with with parable number three and then goes into those three three interactions. Uh, So I think it would be good just just to go through here real quick. Um, Okay, so go ahead and jump to the next slide. To start off, we're going to look at the, the green section. I don't, don't know how easy it is to see these slides. They're kind of small, but uh, next slide. All right, so Jesus' triumphal entry. Um, all right, so this is when Jesus asked them to get a donkey for him, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm just going to highlight some things. I'm going to be highlighting Jesus asserting his authority as a king, son of David, et cetera. So in verse 5, um, uh, Well, in verse 4, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. We can go on to the next slide. Um, And then later on, the people are shouting um, as Jesus is entering the uh, Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus cleanses the temple. And so there's actually uh, an aspect of this part of the story I really want to emphasize, and that's that Jesus was very deliberate in asserting his authority in Jerusalem. 
Uh, personally, I used to read these passages about Jesus coming in and kicking everyone out of the temple uh, that was doing things that weren't good. Uh, and I used to think that Jesus was shocked when he walked in the temple. He lost his composure and he reacted, you know? Because um, that's obviously not what happened. We'll look at that a little bit closer. But like when you think about human anger, right? If, if, if I was to get angry, it's very reactive. But when you think about God's anger, it's very slow and it's very deliberate, um, which would be a, a distinction between God and God and man in, in some sense. So um, in John, I think this is still on, is it? No. So in John chapter 2, verse 15, uh, it says that Jesus made a whip out of cords. Uh, so John chapter 2 covers the same story of Jesus clearing out the temple. Um, so this whip out of cords that Jesus made, why is it significant? Well, maybe it is. Um, I read a, a comment on this on the internet, which is a good source of information. You can go ahead and jump to that. Everyone talks about how Jesus drove the money changers and merchants out of the temple. But everyone glosses over the fact that he took the time to braid a whip. Uh, according to this person's opinion, this, that would have taken a couple of hours. I've braided leather before, and it takes a lot of time and effort. It may have even taken more than one day. There isn't a time period given in scriptures, but I would still say that it was at least a few hours. The point of this is that what he did was not impulsive. It was premeditated. Jesus is deliberately asserting his authority. Um, to build this out a little bit further, instead of just a random comment on the internet, in Barnes' notes on the Bible, uh, is a commentary written in the 1800s by Albert Barnes. Uh, he, he says a few things about this. He emphasizes that uh, the whip was made as an emblem of authority. And then he says later on, the original word implies that these cords were made out of twisted rushes or reeds. So once again, Jesus is very slow and deliberate. And I almost kind of wonder what the disciples were thinking watching Jesus making this whip. Like, what is going on? He's spending a lot of time doing this. I don't know. So... We can go ahead and go to the, uh, the next slide here. All right, so Jesus cleanses the temple, essentially meaning that he drove out the money changers and, and the, the animals that they're selling and, and things like that. Um, and immediately after that, Jesus doesn't leave the temple, right? Uh, if I got angry and I, I lashed out or whatever, I would probably retreat because I realized I overreacted. But Jesus is, is here in the next passage. Jesus is in the temple he didn't get kicked out by the guards from what we, from what we can gather from these scriptures. Um, and it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Um, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, uh, and the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So this is interesting. The, the, uh, the people are calling him the son of David again. And so... They were indignant, meaning the, the religious leaders were indignant that they were calling Jesus the son of David. And so they, they confront Jesus. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you not read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? This is kind of interesting what Jesus is doing here because he is not saying like, oh yeah, you know, they, they just say that. He's like, no, I am the son of David. And in, in this, he's, he's accepting this title, per se. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and move on to the next slide here. Jesus curses the fig tree. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, uh, I think we remember the story. Go ahead to the next one. All right, so this is important. So if we think about what's happened so far, Jesus enters Jerusalem. 
uh, as a king on a donkey, per se. And then he enters the temple deliberately and removes, he cleanses the temple, removes uh, the things that should not be in there. And then after that, he curses a fig tree. And then now we're at this moment where the Pharisees, um, they, they obviously don't, don't like this because they are the orig- religious authority before Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is sort of uprooting that. So if we think about it, like, what is a common, common response if someone like, asserts their authority? Or if, like, if you think about it this way, like if, if a parent makes a new rule for a child, the normal response is for that authority to be tested, push the boundaries, etc. And so that's pretty much, uh, in some senses, what's happening here. And so the Pharisees ask him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So Jesus... Um, he does not answer this question directly. Um, he sort of challenges them by asking them where John the Baptist got his uh, authority from for his baptism. Um, so we can go ahead and move on to the next slide here. All right, so the, the authority of Jesus being tested is, is this transition between where the parables start. And that's going to lead us into 22. Um, so Jesus doesn't answer their question directly, but then he starts talking to them in, in parables. Um, so we go on to the next one. All right, so we're on to this section. We just skimmed through this, this whole Jesus coming in as a king, son of David, etc. That authority has been challenged. Now Jesus is speaking to the, the Pharisees uh, in the parables. Go to the next all right, so the first parable is the parable about the two sons. Um, we're not going to read the parable, but I'm going to highlight something Jesus says. Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Okay? Um, go on to the next slide. And then the next parable Jesus tells is about the tenants. And we're not going to read this one either, but we are going to look at what Jesus says um, sort of in the conclusion of this. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Okay, and so that actually takes us to 22. Um, so we're going to go ahead and look at the parable of the wedding feast. Uh, but just a kind of a comment about those last two parables. If we think about these, the things that Jesus is saying um, in their, the parable's conclusions, they do seem sort of connected. Because on one hand, he's saying like... Um, the kingdom of God, well, he's essentially saying that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to someone else. All right, so, um, yeah, there we go. I'm just going to read this straight out. So, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. This is twice, twice he's inviting them. This is an invitation. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. That seems like an overreaction to being invited to to a wedding feast. Um, The king was angry, obviously, and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned this city. 
Um, we may notice a few things that, that sort of connect this to the, the parable of the tenants, right? Um, and in the parable of the tenants, we see some connections between that and the parable of the two sons. All right, so now we've sort of made it to the, the end of the parables. We, we were kind of moving quickly. Um, but there's, so the, the, the things I want to highlight once again is in the parable of the two sons, right? One of the sons said they would obey. The other said he would not obey. But the son who said he would obey did not obey, okay? And so Jesus is, is directing this at the, the Pharisees, okay? He's basically telling the Pharisees that they are the son who said he would obey, but they did not obey, okay? And then he's also telling the, the Pharisees in the second parable that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them, the disobedient son, and will be given to those who are producing its fruits. And so now we make it to this parable in 22, and he essentially says to join the wedding banquet, they must do two things, respond to the invitation and wear the wedding garment of which they were doing neither. So essentially, the, the Pharisees' authority is uprooted. And they would want to reclaim that territory. So in the next uh, three sections, there will be three rounds where they try to trap Jesus in, in his words, right? So this is, this is them fighting against Jesus' authority. It's how I'm seeing this here. So go ahead and jump to the next slide again. Um, again. All right, cool. So this is the section we're in, uh, rounds one, two, and three. So we're going to start with round one. Uh, go ahead, next slide. And then again. Okay, cool. So paying taxes to Caesar. Um, a little bit of housekeeping here. Uh, in five of the Boltons, there's actually a Caesar's coin. It's, it's something I made out of wood. It's not, it's not valuable, but I thought it'd be cool if anyone like is a tactile learner to like, have a few of those out there. So if you found one, that's what it is. You don't have to do anything special. Um, okay. We're, we're going we're gonna to dive into this, this part of the this scripture a little bit deeper. <sighs> the, then the Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle him in his words. It's a conflict here. And they sent their disciples to him, him being Jesus, along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know you are true and teach the ways of God truthfully and that you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. That sounds like flattery given the fact that they're actually going to attack him. But um, Verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This exchange between the Pharisees, Herodians, and Jesus is a familiar one. It's kind of a fun passage. Um, Man tries to challenge God uh, in a battle of wits. You can go to the next slide. And stuns those who are... Jesus' response stuns those people who are challenging him. Jesus' response is kind of seen as like witty, Right? Personally, I'm sort of tempted to jump into like, my childlike brain and think like, oh, well, this is just like that scene from Princess Bride where the hero is challenged by the Sicilian and the, the hero outsmarts um, per se. I mean, there's, that's, there's caveats to that, but he outsmarts the, the villain. But if we 
dive into this a little bit more, I think we'll find that it's more than just a battle of wits that's happening about this exchange about the coin. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesars or not? To Caesar or not? So to explain why and where this question came from of is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not, we have to go on a little bit of a journey. And this journey is going to start in Acts. Surprise. Um, all right, so in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are on trial. And there is, um, I'm going to look at my notes for this. So the religious leaders wanted to kill him, but a respected and probably old Pharisee, uh, Gamaliel, stood up. He gave a powerful speech, um, and in it he mentions Judas of Galilee. This is not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. This is a different Judas. It seemed to be a common, common name back then. He says that Judas drew many people to him, but that he perished and his followers were scattered. Yeah, we could just read it from the Bible here. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, uh, 6 AD, and he drew some of the people away after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, I guess to, to, to put this in, in a little bit of, of, of context, so Judas leads this movement in 6 AD. So these Pharisees that are challenging Jesus about the coin, they would have been young men, likely, when this movement happened. So it's very relevant. It's a part of their culture. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the speech that Gamaliel gives where he's talking about, like, well, this leader, Judas, he died, and his followers were scattered. These people, their, their Jesus died by the Pharisees' perception. And of course, they'll be scattered unless the power of God is backing them, right? And then in that case, you'll find yourself fighting against God. It's a really cool, like, it's a really cool speech in the Bible. And I would love to talk about it more because I like it so much, but we are still talking about this coin. So, so this, this movement that Judas led... Judas preached, Caesar is not king over Israel, but God is king over Israel. Okay, I think I could get behind that if I was an Israelite back then, right? Um, and he says more. Next slide. Because God is king over Israel and not Caesar, the people of Israel should not pay taxes to Caesar. Okay, so we, we've entered in, in the realm of, of something political back then. Um, and it's really easy to understand why the, the Israelites would have bought into this ideology. And it's going to become even more clear when we, when we look at this coin a little bit more. Um, I guess it's also important to, to, to kind of set the gravity of, of this whole rebellion. Uh, Judas encouraged people not to register for the census. Um, and those that did, Judas, Judas's following burned their houses, stole their cattle, um, and then Eventually, the, they formed an armed incursion against the Romans, and the Romans defeated it. It was bloody, it was messy, and then his followers were scattered. But uh, if you look at the writings of Josephus, um, ancient, ancient historian, uh, he, he suggests that these ideas, these ideologies, were kind of rooted in, in the, the, the Israelite people, and it, it stayed with them. It, it lingered, right? Even after his following was scattered. So, um, let's go to the next slide. Let's look at this coin. This is interesting. So, this, this coin. So, do we know what this coin says? 
the Tiberius denarius. This is the, the one that's traditionally assumed to be the coin used to pay the, the tribute tax back then. It's not definitely the coin, but we're going to go with that. On the front side in ancient Greek, of course, it says Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Son of the divine. It could almost be said as like son of God, right? It's pretty offensive. Um, on the other side, on the back side, it says uh, Pontifex Max, Maxim or something like that. And it stands for greatest priest or high priest. And this was a title that was successively bestowed to Roman emperors. And that basically meant that they were the absolute religious authority. So this is interesting. This, this coin, I, 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 could, I, just, I have to imagine being a Jew back then. It's just like the, the resentment of, of paying this coin that says son of God on one side and the other side it says absolute religious authority in, in, in implication, having to pay this tax to Caesar who's king over Israel. But Caesar's not king over Israel, God's king over Israel. And so there's definitely this, this thick conflict happening both, both physically with, with these revolts, but also internally as, as these, these, these Israelites are, are having to decide how to respond to these situations. So let's go, back to, let's go back to the scripture. Next slide. It's really interesting how Jesus responds to this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Hypocrites, he'll explain why he called him a hypocrite here in a second. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. In that, they're hypocritical, right? Because they're saying, they're challenging Jesus about, are you going to say that we should pay this tax or not? And yet they have a coin for the tribute tax, right? They're still carrying this coin um, that, that, that was offensive, right? So um, show me the coin and for the tax. And they brought him the denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose image is on the coin, right? What does the coin say? He's pointing, it's interesting that he would, he would even, even, even draw reference to this inscription, right? And they say, Caesar's. And he says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they marveled and left him, and they left him and went away. They didn't really have a response to that. And it's, it's inter- interesting that Jesus' stance is not necessarily like polarized from a, a, the, the current politics of their time, but his, his stance is sort of cutting between all of that. Um, and so, if you, if you think about it, it really was a well-placed trap, right? Um, I don't... It, it, I mean, you get... I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm kind of start stumbling over my words here. I'm just, an idea I really want to convey is, is to try to think about, like, well, if I was in that position, like, where, where would I stand, okay? And then where would that be in relation to where Jesus stood? Um, and sometimes those are different things. So, Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Personally, if you ask me, at least up to this point, this sermon may have been paying too much tribute to Caesar and his coin. Jesus' statement is double-edged, and there's another side to this sword that 
may be of even greater significance. So, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God's. Render unto God the things that are God's. One more time for effect. Render unto God the things that are God's. We're going to think about this for a minute. I spent quite a bit of time thinking about this, this statement, render under God's what is God's. And if you, if you look at the actual words, when it's saying render, it, it essentially means to give back. So regarding, I think I even have one in my pocket, regarding this coin, Jesus said, give that back to Caesar. Give, essentially, Caesar has given them something. He's given them like, like I don't really want to go down on that road too far, but he's sort of given them the uh, structure. He's given them, like, protection. Where they're able to do trade, whatnot. And so, uh, and then in return, Caesar demands a tribute, right? And so Jesus is essentially saying this money, this thing, this sort of man-made thing, um, it, it's, it's Caesar's. Give it back to Caesar, right? But then he says, give unto God what is God's. And so I ask myself, well, what is God's? The obvious answer is everything, right? But to me... Thinking about giving unto God what is God's, I'm not satisfied with just saying, well, that's everything, right? So we're just going to give God everything, which, I mean, that's true. (laughs) Don't get me wrong here. But um, when Jesus is saying, give unto God what is God's, he's not talking directly about this coin, the money, right? There's there's more, it's deeper than this, right? So when I think of like, okay, I'm going to give unto God. What am I, what am I going to give unto God? I have, what do I have to give God? And so the sort of human part of my brain, which I guess my brain's human, fair enough. Um, but the human side of me is like, well, I have two things. I have time and I have money. Because that's how we operate in this world. We, work, we operate in time uh, and money. And some people think of these things as in, uh, uh, interchangeable. Like time is money and money... Well, it isn't really time, but um, they're sort of in, uh, interchangeable. That's sort of like the currency of this world. It's the context we're in. We trade our time for money, and with our money, we, we survive uh, by food, etc. Um, in an earthly sense. So when, when Jesus is saying, give unto God what is God's, to think of time and money is, isn't, isn't quite right. I think there's more to it than that. So if it's deeper and truer than money, and maybe even truer than time in the generic sense, he must want me to give him, like, my heart. Okay, well, sure. So I give him my blood pumping muscle, right? It's, this is still not very well defined. And I, I want to get... I, I, there's, a, there's a part of me that really wants to drill down into this, of, like, giving unto God what is God's. This is... Caesar's image. It belongs to him. So what do I have that bears the image of God? Right? I do. I bear the image of God. So what does it mean to give the image of God back to God's? Back to God. With this, this thing of giving the image of God, like I, we are the image of God, to give that back to God, right? I fear that if I was to put like a label on this, right? If I was to if I was to succeed in putting this concept of giving the image of God back to God's, if I was to succeed at like defining this and wrapping this up, that it would be inadequate. Um 
this thing, the idea to give unto God what is God's, deserves a response, not just cognitively, but it deserves a response from our inner being. As, as I was thinking about this and studying about this concept, and I, I was sort of challenged with this idea of giving, giving back to God what is God's, the, the only real appropriate response that I, I, could, I could dig up was, was prayer, right? And as I was praying, like, God, like, what am I giving back? What am I to give back to you? What am I rendering to you? It was sort of a powerful thing because essentially what I found myself asking is, God, what am I not giving you? What, what parts of me am I, am I holding on to, etc.? And it reminded me a little bit of the, the prayer from uh, the, uh, the Welsh Revival um, where, where he prayed, Lord, bend me, bend me. And he struggled to put into words this idea of God forming him and shaping him. Like, that, that was all he could come up with. Um, and maybe I'm running with this idea. Maybe I'm just getting way off track with this, just getting lost in this thought of giving to God back this, this image of God. But just thinking about this, this prayer, like thinking about this verse in the context of prayer, there is a, a prayer that goes deeper than our, our conscious ways of describing things, right? Um, go ahead and go to the next slide. The one after that. Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Um, I, was, I was thinking about this a bit more, about like this, this whole thing. of like I really, really felt so strongly that, that there was this sort of prayer of giving, giving back parts of me to God that I had forgotten about or had overlooked or I was holding on to them. Uh, maybe implicitly, right? That part of like, this utility of the spirit praying within us is just, just the fact that like, what we want, like, what, we, what we hold on to, we justify, right? And it could either be through, like, through conscious justification or, or just, just like, willful ignorance of the, these parts of ourselves that, that, we, that, that belong to God, but we hold on to, Right? And so this, this prayer of, like, of, of, giving, of giving back to God, rendering ourselves to God, I think it's a very deep thing. And one of the, one of the focuses of this year is bold, persistent prayer. Um, so I would, I would encourage us, as just all of us, to, to pray that, right? To really seek out the parts of us that we hold on to, um, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself by going back into this, but I, 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 th- I really feel like I need to emphasize this in that, like, when, when we pray, right, when we're having a conversation with God, there is sort of a barrier, which is our, our, na- our human nature, right? Like, our desire for these things in this world, our desire to hold on to certain things, um, and I, I think that to, to get past that, to get past that layer of, of what we hold on to, it, it takes, it takes a, a bold, persistent prayer and letting the Spirit work, work in that. I digress. On to the next round. 
Next slide. Round two. So if we think about this first round, Pharisees challenge Jesus about the coin. Um, Jesus's response, it, it cuts through everything. It cuts through the politics, the, 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 just, just the whole trap, etc. And so, uh, next slide. So after the Pharisees, who were challenging Jesus' authority, try to trap him in words, when, when their attempt fails, the Sadducees try to trap him as well in the same day. This is all very connected. This is happening, happening at the same time. So to set up this section, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. And so they're prepared to question Jesus. And I would like to think that these Sadducees have been probably debating the Pharisees and other religious leaders for a long time about the resurrection or whatnot. And so they have formulated a question that they think will stump Jesus. So they set up a scenario where a woman was married seven, seven times uh, and uh, in a lawful structure. Uh, and then they're asking like, okay, well, if there really is a resurrection, then, then who's, who's going to be married to her? Gotcha there. Um, but the scriptures say, uh, but Jesus answered them. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I believe when he says that you don't know the power of God, he's referring to the resurrection. You don't know the power of God to resurrect. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So what Jesus does next, I think, is a really cool argument. I think you can go to the next slide, maybe. He says, and in the resurrection of the dead, have you not read... I'm sorry. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So Jesus might've had this conversation like 2000 plus years ago, but in, in, in the, the earthly context, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very dead by this point. Um, so Jesus then says, um, Well, okay, sorry, I got a little lost there. <laughs> um, so anyways, the Sadducees believed that there was not erection, a resurrection. So why would a living God say he is the God of dead people, right? Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Why would he be the God of these dead people if he is the God of the living? And Jesus sort of references Deuteronomy 5.26 where it says, uh, where it basically describes God as the living God, so when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Once again, Jesus stands, where Jesus is standing, is not on like the clear-cut ideologies and philosophies and, and doctrines that were, that were there at the time, right? Because um, I, think, I think that Jesus' statement not only surprised the Sadducees, but it may have also surprised the Pharisees. So what happens next? On to the next round, round three. Next slide. This is the last one, guys, just so you know. The great commandment. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. So it's really interesting that they chose a lawyer and that the Bible thought it was worth mentioning, right? Here, Jesus, a carpenter, craftsman, 
right? They're sending a lawyer like, well, the lawyer's going to get you trapped in words. He's, he's going to beat you. Um, not, not really what happens here. So, um, the lawyer questions him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all of the laws and the prophets. Jesus is is in some ways perfect, right? Or it, it is perfect. It's, it's like a flawless summary of, of the law and the prophets. Um, and, in, and here they're asking him, like, okay, well, put, put a number one out there, a number one commandment. And he doesn't, just doesn't leave it at one. He says, uh, just want to read it from his words. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These things are interconnected, right? Just as like faith and a holy life and a holy life and faith are, are connected, so is loving God and loving your neighbors, right? Um, and so three times they test Jesus, three times they challenge his authority, and three times they fail. So they, they've tried everything. They've tried the Pharisees, and they, they send their questions. They try the Sadducees, and they try a lawyer. Um, and at the summary of this chapter, Jesus then turns the tables. Um, so I was, gonna, I was planning on reading off my slides, so I'm going to pull up the Bible on my phone, which is off. Can I borrow a Bible? Thank you. Okay. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, okay, actually, I have to pause there. This is important. So if we think about 21, do you remember when the crowds, when Jesus enters Jerusalem and like, uh, they say, Hosanna to the son of David? And then later on, Jesus is healing people in the temple, and the Pharisees are like, hey, they're calling you the son of David. And Jesus quotes David in a psalm and basically says, out of the mouths of, of children, something about praise. <laughs> um, wow, that was, that was fast. Thanks for pulling that back up. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Yeah, so... This is just a recap, what I was, was just mentioning as far as in, in 21, they asked him, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, so here, yeah, Jesus is asking, uh, what do you think about the Christ whose son of him, whose son is he? And they say the son of David. Next slide. Um, next slide. Yeah, this, this was the, the verse. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Next slide. This is the actual psalm where Jesus is, is, is quoting. Um, this is a psalm written by David. Uh, o Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy 
and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The psalm continues, um, but it's worth, it's worth mentioning that this, this psalm is quoted a lot in the New Testament and I believe in Corinthians and various other places. Um, go ahead and go to the next slide. So, earlier Jesus is asserting his authority, entering Jerusalem as a king. He's given this title, son, or the, the, the people are calling him the son of David, right? Jesus doesn't dismiss that. He, he, he owns it per se. And so then Jesus says to the Pharisees who had just admitted, like, okay, well, you know, um, I want to read it from here. Okay, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is the Messiah? All right, and they say the son of David. And then Jesus says, how is it that the son of David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then Jesus calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. The Pharisees have been thoroughly defeated. The religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Herodians, etc. Um, and where, where it says in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. That's, that's exactly what happens. The Pharisees don't question Jesus up until his trial before he um, goes to the cross. And so between, between 21 and 22, we see Jesus asserting his authority. His authority is challenged, but the challengers are, are scattered per se. Um, so we're, we're going, to, going to go ahead and end here. That said KO. It was like a knockout phrase, but the slide is a little f- funny. Um, that's all right. So let, let's pray. God, I, I pray that, that your, your word, that, that what, we, what we've heard today, that it would, that would resonate and it would stay with us during this week, God, and that you would, you would show us these, these parts of, of, our, of our heart and of our, these things that we hold on to, God, that, that, we would, that we would become less of ourselves and more of you, God. Lord, we, we love you, and we, we thank you for this time that we have here. Um, in your name, amen.